0: Politicon lives at the crossroads of politics and news and entertainment. Uh, The way Americans obtain and digest the important information in the world around us over the last several years has become a billion-dollar industry. Our news anchors and our news reporters are all celebrities. Our celebrities are outspoken and invested in our political process. And at times, the line between entertainment and politics can become incredibly blurred. So seven years ago, Politicon recognized this phenomenon, and they began working to use the power of that increasingly gray area to start some very important conversations, to bring together in one place people from all corners of the political spectrum for thoughtful debate and discussion about some of the most important and urgent topics and issues facing America. They wanted to harness the power of entertainment to get people engaged in issues that they might never have engaged in before and capture an audience's attention and make them think about how they might improve the world around them. So when Politicon began in 2015, its enormous success was really no surprise because even though Politicon was the first of its kind, using entertainment to spur people to start important conversations isn't really an entirely new tactic. Great TV and film documentarians have been doing it for years. And of course, I'm not talking about just any documentary, not just the kind that we all had to watch in high school, not talking about nature documentaries, not those TV docs that teach us about World War I or how cheese is made. Um, some of the world's greatest documentaries are able to take a subject that's so obscure, tell the story, and make us feel joy or fear or sadness in ways that are even more powerful than some scripted films can. And they do it all while teaching us about something that we might have never heard of before. And oftentimes they incite us to take action and to expect better from the world around us. I'm Clay Aiken and Politicon's guest this week on how the heck are we gonna get along is exactly that kind of documentary maker. Alex Gibney has been called the most important documentarian of our time. His documentary films and series about Enron and WikiLeaks and Scientology, Elliot Spitzer, Steve Jobs, Vladimir Putin's Russia. They've not only been showered with praise and awards, including six Emmys and an Oscar, but his docs have done more to give viewers a glimpse into some of the darkest and most disturbing sides of human nature than almost any documentary films ever made. Now, after exposing the secrets of organizations like the Church of Scientology for his series, Going Clear, or the secrets of businesses like Elizabeth Holmes Theranos in his film, The Inventor, out for blood in Silicon Valley, Alex Gibney is returning to HBO next week with his newest project, The Crime of the Century. It's a two-part documentary that takes on possibly his biggest subject yet, the pharmaceutical industry. He'll talk with us this week about some of the secrets he uncovered as he documented the most powerful industry in America. And I'll ask him what our political leaders can do to prevent healthcare prices in America from continuing to rise, to prevent the opioid crisis from being exploited by pharmaceutical companies. And do politicians even have any power at all over an industry as strong as big pharma? In Alex Gibney's vast experience documenting some of the most scandalous and unscrupulous members of our society. What has he learned that might help us understand why it's become so easy for Americans to trust the untrustworthy? And if believing people and their dishonest messaging um, is simply a flaw of human nature, how the heck are we gonna get along? hello alex yes hey are you on you can hear me i can hear you can you hear me i can hear you i'm actually kind of pumped about uh this i just want to make sure mike can hear everything he needs mike as our our uh, engineer you know all about the camera stuff i've actually you know we've done this a while um for a year now and i don't always get to talk to people who i have seen all their stuff um, so it's really kind of cool to talk to you. I'm thrilled that you're able to do this with us. Thank you so much. First of all, let me just say that delighted. I am a I'm a, a big fan of your stuff uh, from Going Clear and and the Inventor and all that and and it's it, it's varied. Your your topics are so kind of all over in a way, is there a thread that you find within them, like how you choose them?
1: Sometimes I choose them and sometimes they choose me. So that would be the reason for (coughs) variety. And sometimes it's important to branch out a little bit. I mean, I I think if you look, you dig down, I mean, I am interested in deception. I'm interested in in fraud and I'm interested in abuses of power. That said, I've, I've done docs about sports, about music, um, you know, th- that interests me, too. Um, I guess I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm interested. So um, you if, if you dug, you could probably find a commonality of purpose. But I think what drives me to do certain stories is because they are good stories. Do you know they're good stories before you go into them always? Generally, but I, you know, the thing is, it's sometimes a good thing to to imagine that you know the story when you start, but it's also very helpful to be humble enough to realize that you may not know the story at all, and it may take you in a completely different direction. And that ends up being pretty important and powerful too. When did that happen? Well, let's look at the Armstrong Live, for example. You know, I was I was hired on that film to do a kind of ride-along. L- let's observe Lance during his comeback year, which was 2009. Um, and that was to be a sort of, you know, that was to be a kind of pure sports doc, you know, following a, a, an athlete at the top of his game or an athlete coming back, in a, a, you know, after he had been at the top of his game and could he do it again? Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, he did something again <laughs> turned out a bit differently. Um, so yeah, do you, no, go ahead. Finish. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when I started the film I did about Julian Assange, we steal secrets, you know, I, I went in thinking that it was a David and Goliath story and that Julian was kind of an unalloyed good guy. Um. And I, I barely knew about uh, Chelsea Manning, um, and and that story got much more complicated as I dug into it. So you know, you 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 learn to. It's almost like having a, a theory, and then you see if you can prove it. But you have to be open to the idea that your theory is all wrong. Do you? Do you?
0: fall in love with your subjects ever? Do you end up liking them or disliking them? And therefore, how do you keep that from painting how you portray the situation?
1: Well, it's an interesting um, question because I end up um, liking, particularly when you sit down with somebody and you do an interview, I find, particularly the way I do interviews, they're non-confrontational, they're they're conversations. And I end up having an appreciation for People as as human beings, and I end up being sympathetic to them in the moment, and indeed allowing them to tell their stories very much the way they want to tell them. I think that's important. That said, I I think I also you know I've been around long enough to know that sometimes I get lied to. In fact, I often get lied to. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, you do. <laughs> also, at the end of the day, my biggest obligation is not to the interview subjects, but to the uh, to the audience. So it's incumbent upon me to find a way to get at the truth, a deeper truth. And, you know, sometimes that means um, reaffirming what subjects have told me. And sometimes that means showing that what they told me was complete and utter bullshit. And sometimes that they're pissed that you asked them. Yeah. Well, sometimes they <laughs> are. And, and though, know, like I said, I, I don't generally do the kind of, gotcha questioning where the attention is focused back on me as, as the heroic interrogator. The gotcha moments tend to be in the editing room. If I discover that what somebody has told me is a lie, then I have to find a way of showing that.
0: Does it make you mad that they lied to you
1: or? Yeah, sure. It does make me mad though. Um, though I, I've learned that, um, you know, we're all afflicted with this um, tendency to try to tell stories in which we are the Anna Lloyd good guys. And you so, don't say. <laughs> and so it, it doesn't really surprise me that they do it. So sometimes, they're like, I remember one critic asked me why I wasn't angrier um, in the Armstrong lie that, that that Lance had lied to me. And and I suppose, you know, I didn't think thoroughly enough about it at the time, but I, I, I suppose the answer to that is, Maybe because I expected him to. Right. But you you do go after people who I think you,
0: or at least I, would expect to lie to you. I mean, Elliot Spitzer and, I mean, Scientology, Elizabeth Holmes. Um, I mean, you, you you kind of, do you think you gravitate towards people who are deceptive or do you think we all are? And you
1: just happened well, to I point it out. I mean, you know, Characters at the inter, uh, characters at the center of stories um, where there's some element of deception. You, you, <laughs> you know, you're going in knowing that you're doing a story not only about se- deception but also possibly and likely about self-deception. So in that sense, it, it kind of comes with the territory. Self-deception. Okay, I may get that uh, oh. with Elliot
0: Spitzer. It- Elizabeth Holmes, I think, deceived herself.
1: Really? Uh, I think. So you
0: think, so she wasn't a
1: sociopath is what, because that's what I took home from it. Well, Um. I I think you can say that she's a sociopath and that's an easy diagnosis to make. Um, But, but I think that in order to lie really effectively, and this may not be um, inconsistent with being a sociopath, but in order to lie really effectively, in the moment when you're telling that lie, you have to believe it's true so that's a that's a kind of self-deception and i think that when elizabeth holmes told people with passion in her voice that this box was really a magnificent device she believed that she was telling the truth maybe because she thought sometime in the future it was going to be and when lance armstrong would be on 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 the podium and say how dare you say that i as a cancer survivor would ever use performance enhancing drugs i believe that at the moment he said that He believed he wasn't lying, even though he would come down uh, off the podium that he was speaking to people on, and and he might go do another bag of blood, and he would know very well that he was lying. And one of the things he said to me later was, you know, because I called the film The Armstrong Lie, he said, yeah, well, I did lie. But but I think the best liars are people who deceive themselves into believing that it's the truth. So that's why self-deception, I think, is important. It's important to understand how the psychological process works. It's a kind of variation of the end justifies the means, where if you believe that you're possessed of a noble cause, then it's okay to do things that are bent around the edges because at the end of the day, you're serving that higher purpose. But over time, that becomes a kind of corruption that um, uh, that defiles what you're what you're trying to do, and that's very much the case in the crime of the century. I mean, that's 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 really um, a, a textbook case of that. Yeah. So,
0: are there differences then in the ways that people like Elliot Spitzer, Lance Armstrong, Elizabeth Holmes lie? And the way organizations like Scientology and Big Pharma lie.
1: I mean, you're talking I about. People, I, I think people inside the organizations tell themselves the same kind of lies. Oh, really? In other words, the Sacklers say, well, let's take Scientology first. You know, Scientology, um, the people at the top or people like Tom Cruise would say, this is a really important and vital tool for. Uh, advancing human society, you know that it's that grandiose, and therefore, people who oppose this must be um, dispatched with all possible venom um, because they are the enemies of something great and something good. Conversely, you know, because mostly even terrorists, you know, if you if if you look, if you talk to people about terrorists, very often, particularly terrorist. Inculcation—that is to say, when when they're when when people are being recruited into terrorist organizations—they're not recruited by people saying, you know, please come to our organization so you can do horrible things to people, you know. They're recruited with a vision of goodness, uh, of uh, of a vision of the world in which. Um, Whatever version of that religion is, whether it's a political religion or a real religion, is going to bring freedom and peace and prosperity to the world. And once you're hooked, then they say, in service of this great thing that we're all a part of, we must now ask you to do some terrible things. And it's important that you do them. But the initial hook is not a hook to being bad. It's a hook to a larger greatness of, of possibility. And I think in the case of Purdue and the Sacklers, I mean, ultimately, you know, the big crime here, it's a crime of what happens when commerce meets health care. But I think that in the early days, remember, uh, Richard Sackler and his uncle, um, uh, Arthur Sackler, were possessed of this idea that um that there is a that that there can be drugs that can help the human condition, and therefore it is a noble pursuit to try to introduce those drugs to people. Arthur Sackler, in fact, you know, started as 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 did Arthur's brothers um uh, uh, started at uh, at the Creedmore psychiatric facility, and they were seeing the most appalling displays of electroshock therapy and transorbital lobotomies. And they thought of that as brutal and vicious. And Arthur, in particular, you know, said this is no way to treat human beings. If only we could devise a pill that would um, cure these mental diseases that are now being so brutally um, attacked through these other means. And it was that that becomes the kind of noble idea that leads to a deeper corruption. We're treating people's pain. What could be more noble than that? And but, but 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 along the way, the lure of money is so great that you begin to rationalize ever more and more. There's a wonderful phrase, um, I, I can't remember who said it, but it's basically the, the phrase is economic actors are not rational, they're rationalizers. And so what you find in in corporate corruption is rationalizing. In other words, we're doing good. Um, And so we're making money in doing good. But it never occurs to them that actually their abuses are tied in to the very idea that they want to make more and more and more money. And they think they're entitled to make all that money because they're doing good.
0: You're still being really generous to people. I mean, it feels like it's incredibly gracious on your
1: part, right? But it's not about being generous in some ways, it's not the good news, it's actually the bad news. Because that means that all of us are capable of doing really bad stuff, because we all think we're good guys, right? And in the, that means in the wrong circumstance, or with a lack of any broader perspective or moral background, we could do terrible things. That's what takes you down the road of Nazi Germany, for example. So, So I don't think... It's generosity. I just think it's, a tri- it's an attempt to understand human psychology. That doesn't mean that there isn't at the heart of this an abuse of power. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that drew me to this story was the idea that this wasn't an opioid crisis, something that just happens. You know, oh my God, isn't it terrible that weak people get addicted to drugs uh, and, and they end up overdosing? Isn't that terrible? What are we gonna do? Well, no. This was about a crime in the sense that that Purdue and then later other companies purposefully um, engaged in fraud to hide the dangers of these medicines, of these opioids, so that they could make more money. That is a fact, and they were enabled by uh, federal bureaucrats later on, Congress people, um, and so it ends up being a crime. All I'm saying is. If you want to look where the crime started, it's not snidely whiplash in the basement of a laboratory going, I'm going to go kill some people for money. That's not how it works. It, it starts out with something noble and then ends up being something very deeply corrupt.
0: Well, when you talk about fraud, you're talking about those, those fraudulent activities that they, that they undertook, they, part, they partook in, that you were saying – we're all in the service in their minds, we're all in the service of this greater good. But, but they had a knowledge of the fact that they were doing things that were wrong. Um, I'm not so, sure
1: they do. I mean, even today, you know. W- w- in committing the fraud, in the cover
0: ups, in the way that they, they marketed and presented these, these things, oh. you don't feel like they knew
1: that. No. I, I, I think they pretend. They either pretend or they've internalized the idea that they've never, ever done anything wrong. I have David Sackler, uh, who's Richard's son, you know, at the end of part two of Crime of the Century, saying, basically, saying on camera, basically, I can't remember, I can't quote him exactly, but essentially saying that we never did anything wrong. Um, that's, and you think he means, you really, you're telling me you think he really believed that? Yes, I do. He wasn't just lying. No, I think it's delusional. Um, well, OK. But so, that doesn't mean I, 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 you know, and I think he's wrong. And, and I think that um, it's convenient for him to say that because he's surrounded himself with lots of powerful lawyers and um <laughs> who may know better but are being paid to yeah, not know better who, right who, who, who are paid to carry his water
0: <laughs> right so so just to kind of, well first of all i we mentioned it in the introduction but but the crime of the century starts um on premieres on May 10th on HBO yes. uh, tonight, two part doc, not your first at HBO. People have seen quite a few of yours there, several Emmys um, in the background, I'm sure. Uh, but so so people can see this May 10th and May 11th on HBO um, and HBO Max and all that that yeah. stuff also. But I um, I, I kind of want to take as part, I don't want to give too much away from this because I want people to watch it. Sure. But what is interesting to me and and to what we're, Trying to do here on this particular podcast is sort of relating some of that human nature stuff that you were talking about to maybe maybe delusion is a harsh word to use, but but it's the only one I can think of now to politicians and the political process. I mean, you 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 talk about how they um, politicians protected. Um, these big pharma companies for quite a while do you think they knew um better do you think politicians were also delusional into thinking oh will these medications help people and what we're doing is i mean is there that same uh, uh willful ignorance on, on politicians part i was
1: just about to use that phrase willful ignorance or willful denial what do politicians get from big pharma money, money. lots yeah. of money And that's what helps them get elected. And politicians, look, in some ways, let me be sympathetic to them for a second. I know, you know, in the past few election cycles, I, I, you know, in the past, I didn't give any money to politicians, but at a certain point, I I thought it was an existential issue. And you you discover very quickly how desperate politicians are for money. And even after they win the election, it's like the very next day after the election, it's like, well, that one was a really tough one. But now we got to we got to gear up for that next campaign. We got to raise money. And you wonder, well, when do they have time to legislate? Because they're spending so much time raising money. 40 um, hours a week, at least, even when they're in Congress. Correct. And so that's appalling because it means they really can't pay attention to what's going on. And by the way, Big Pharma knows that. And most lobbyists know that. Most, you know, people are, I think, would be surprised to learn that, um these big companies, in many cases, write the legislation that is jammed through Congress uh, on their behalf. And so, yes, I think politicians practice a kind of willful denial. I mean, you know, in one of the stories that we tell is the story of a law that was passed that actually undermined the ability of the DEA to go after big companies who are flooding the country and I'm talking about some of America's biggest corporations who are literally flooding the country with opioids in ways that they knew to be irresponsible because they knew where every pill was going, every pharmacy, every pill. And, you know, you'd have towns of a few thousand people and be getting millions of pills, one for every man, woman, and child for every day of the year. So that can't be for back pain. That's got to be for something else. So they knew better. And there was a law that allowed um, the DEA to crack down on them and crack down on them very effectively if there was so-called diversion, which means taking prescription, proper prescription uh, drug transactions and diverting them or allowing them to be diverted into the black market. So legislators at the behest of lobbyists, some of whom used to work for the Department of Justice and or the DEA, um go along with rewriting these bills because they're told it'll actually be better for law enforcement. It wasn't better at all, but they don't do any due diligence. And they're given this and they're given a very tidy title, which sounds like it's better for everybody and addressing the opioid epidemic when it's when indeed it's doing the exact opposite. So at some point, I don't think it's cynical because a lot of them get up there with a a great deal of uh, a, a sense of Of um, righteousness. And, you know, we're doing the right thing for the American people. This is bipartisan. I mean, the law I'm talking about uh, was an amendment to a law, but it was passed by unanimous consent. That means every member of Congress passed it, which means that um, they didn't bother to read the bill and they didn't bother to do their diligence on the bill to see just how damaging it would be. They floated it because Big Pharma wanted them to float it. And because they were gonna get paid lots of money. So is pay to play. And that is staggering. But, you know, back to your point, I think that they allow themselves to do it not because they think. I'm taking money and it's bad, but I need the money, even though I know hundreds of thousands of people are going to die as a result. But fuck it. I'm going to take the money. And I'm sorry to to swear if that's the.
0: Oh, who gives a shit? We do it all the time. (laughs) Some (laughs) things
1: deserve it. (laughs) So, so they, so. That's not how they do it. They do it by saying, this is so important. So many people are suffering. And this will really help law enforcement, even though it eviscerated law enforcement. And this will really help patients, even though it did enormous damage to patients. They just believed the bullshit that they were being spun by the lobbyists because it was in their financial interest to do so.
0: So I think people know this. Voters at home know it. I mean, we, I think, most people don't trust any politician at this point. Um, But some things like money in politics and the amount of money that companies spend or spend to lobby to, to affect legislation, just don't get any energy from voters. They're not sexy issues. They're not things that most people vote on. So as much as we know it is destructive, Uh, not just in big pharma, but in in dozens of other policy areas. Um, Is there a way to get people more interested in the effects of it um, and to, to actually want change? Because I don't know that really either side of the aisle is too eager to stop taking this money um, unless the laws are changed and no one can take it, right? So why, how, do, how do we take an issue like this, um, like money in politics lobbying the, the damage that can be done to Americans' everyday lives because of money in politics? How do we make it sexier so that people actually put it even closer
1: to the top of their list of priorities? It's a good question. And it's a tough question. But before I answer that question, let me go back to something you said earlier. It is true. And actually, there's a line about it in the film. You know, in terms of um, categories of people, nobody is less trusted than members of Congress. Um, They're at the absolute bottom. Okay. That, that really says where do, where do the pharmaceutical companies come in on that list? Just, Just above. like one of them yeah. yeah. <laughs> but 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 I think that but, um, whereas doctors are and nurses are at the very top, right. right those are the people but what's interesting is, if people really believe what they tell pollsters, then no person in Congress would ever serve more than one term, because mm-hmm. they'd all be voted out immediately. Right? Because nobody trusts them and they're held in utter contempt. Well, but they don't trust other people's Congress members. Well, this right? is what they I'm seem saying. to like their this own, but I'm not saying. others. It's like, oh, I love my guy, but everybody else is corrupt. Well, no, your guy is corrupt too, or mm-hmm. gal. You know, they're all corrupt. They're corrupt not because they're um, a, a different kind of person than the other Congress people, but because the system is corrupt. The system is a pay-to-play system, and people have got to fixate on that because unless that fixed system gets si- gets fixed, we're all done. That's why the opiate crisis happened is because of money um, right. and because money is greasing everybody's palms every step along the way, and money, the, the unchecked desire for money allows for um, – a collateral damage that is just colossal. I mean, we're talking about 500,000 people dead.
0: But it's not, un, 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 fort, unfortunately, I guess, unfortunately, it's not as direct pay to play as, I mean, if, if, if I was a member of Congress and I was getting paid in my own pocket by Big Pharma to Pass legislation for them, and they were buying me houses and cars and that type of thing. Then it would be a lot easier to to condemn me. But this is not a pay to play system where anybody's actually getting money directly in their pockets, right? The well, well they're gonna hopefully let- not. But they're getting they're getting money for their campaigns. They're getting money for That's their cool. campaign committee. They're getting money for their party, etc. Yeah. So it's legal, um, yes. it's but it's not, thing. and it doesn't you know, when you use a phrase like greasy, people are getting their palms greased. I know what you're talking about, because we talk about this, but most Americans don't realize, no, no one, yeah, no member of Congress is, or should be getting rich personally based on big pharma, but they are getting reelected because of that money. So it's, it just becomes so abstract and so difficult to to explain Um, and then, With a thing like the opioid crisis, you have that added selfishness on so many people's parts where they say, well, I'm not addicted to drugs. That's their problem, right?
1: Right. And that's something that the Sacklers in particular did very well. They would demonize Mm -hmm. uh, those addicted to (laughs) opioids as, as a way of saying, it's just the bad people. There are many good people out there. I'm one of them. You're one of them. But there are many people... Who are bad people. They're the ones who are addicted to drugs. Well, it turns out though that a lot of people and a lot of families have family members who are addicted to drugs for one reason or another. So I think it's it, 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 it's an argument that's losing its luster. Um, but it, it, it's one that's used very consciously by companies. Let's take it, let's take it away from from Congress for a second. By companies um, to um, rationalize behavior so um, you know the idea that there are just some bad people and they're always going to be addicted to drugs, so there's nothing we can do but when when you discover how how much the pharmaceutical companies knew about what they were doing and how much they knew that their drugs were being diverted, they were being abused, and they knew it every step along the way. And they kept pushing them. Why? Because it made them more money. And, you know, uh, so they are getting greased in in the most fundamental way possible. Right. They are. (laughs) people, People are dying, and they're getting lots and lots and lots of money. So you've done a bunch of uh, we kind
0: of touched on this at the beginning you've done a bunch of of investigations and and told a lot of the stories of people who have done a lot of dishonest things and misled a lot of people um m- less about them i want to know if you have found a common thread amongst those people who tend to fall for those lies. I mean, is there something that, uh, I, I think about some of the people who worked, um, I, most recently before this was, uh, was uh, the inventor for me. So I'm thinking about some of those people who worked for Elizabeth Holmes and who bought into and believed that also, or the people who follow Scientology or, um, or the people who listen to Vladimir Putin and trust him in ways that Citizen K did for a while but then didn't um is there a commonality between the types of people who are more likely to be misled
1: so i'm not sure that there is a commonality it's it's like those who get addicted to drugs i don't think there are certain types of people because actually one of the interesting things about the inventor the elizabeth holmes story um I profiled in that film a number of very experienced investigative reporters who were totally taken in by Elizabeth Holmes. Right. And they were taken in by her, why? Because she presented a paradigm that was so appealing. It was a fact too good, it was a, it it, it was an ideal that was too good to check. That they wanted to believe too, They wanted to believe because they wanted to believe that there would be a woman, in male dominated silicon valley who could make a billion dollars by doing something good it's a fairy tale story and by the way if you're a journalist it's also not the usual story it's it's a it's a good news story not too many of those around so you know why not invest in that and isn't it a beautiful thing that finally a woman who's super smart um super passionate super articulate and is 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 trying to campaign we think for the health and benefit of patients, and indeed is trying to succeed as a woman in male-dominated Silicon Valley, what is not to like. So they were predisposed to wanting to like it, so much so that they blind themselves. Again, willful denial. Um, so I think it's a human trait. And, and, and the people I look at, um, you know, tend to be good at getting over on those folks or people in general. Why? Because they're charismatic because they represent a higher ideal. I mean, Lance Armstrong did raise hundreds of millions of dollars for cancer, right? Um, but he thought- And he was
0: also a feel-good story that people wanted to believe, right?
1: And I can tell you, my my brother-in-law was, a uh, um, you know, cancer. I mean, sadly, he succumbed to cancer, but when, when, when he was in the throes of fighting it, Lance Armstrong was his hero. And he was his hero because he believed that- by dint of his own effort, without access to performance-enhancing drugs, that Lance Armstrong, you know, made it, just by, by will, sheer force of will. That was an important myth for him, and it kept him alive. Um, and now Lance might rationalize it and say, well, you know, if the, you know, maybe that's a lie that it's a good thing, because then people can believe it and it'll help them. But at the end of the day, I don't think lies help anybody. Um, but I, 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 so I think that to some extent we're all subject to this idea that, um, um, I I think we're all susceptible to the con. That's why I think stories about cons are so fascinating to all of us. So... Liars,
0: how I many of you call them liars? <laughs> it's easier the fo- like the many of the folks that you've or folks or companies or organizations that you have have investigated yeah. are good at making at selling this reality or th- this false narrative to people. And it sounds like there's not necessarily a certain subset of the population who's more susceptible to falling for those Scientology-type beliefs, but they all, the people who fall for them are all people who want to believe that is true. They wanna believe that what Scientology promises is going to help them. They wanna believe that these medicines that they are peddling are helping people's lives. They wanna believe- Part of it has
1: to do with a moment in, so sorry to interrupt you, but- No, no, go. Part of it has to do with a certain moment in time. Like I talked to, what was so interesting to me about the Scientologists that I spoke to, many of whom were super intelligent um, people, at a moment in time when they were psychologically wounded or weak, Scientology came in, and at least the initial application of some of the talking cures of Scientology that they use uh, with the... Um, the
0: intake thing.
1: Yeah. Th- they felt better. It was like Freud's talking cure. You know, I got something off my chest. So suddenly like, Whoa, what could be wrong with this? I'm feeling better. And then the Scientology uh, auditors say, well, let, let's do some more. You might feel even better. And then you're hooked. And then, you know, you, 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 you go along with it. Isn't and, that wanting it to work though, too? I mean, if you, if you reach out for that type are. of cure, I mean, you're wanting the, it to that's work. That's the placebo effect as well right. as human beings. That's why when they run, um, you know, placebo controlled studies, they run a placebo effect, but the placebo effect tends to work across humanity. They're not particular people who fall for the placebo, right? All of us do. And, and I think that's the reason that all of us fall for fraud. So it's particular circumstances. And, and I would argue too that, you know, a lot of the people that we talked to in Crime of the Century were people who fell into addiction because they were suffering from enormous pain. And at least initially, um, some of these opioids, particularly the time-release opioids that, that Purdue was selling, um, helped their pain. But what they didn't expect or what they led were led to believe didn't occur was that they got addicted. And the next thing they knew, they needed the drugs, not for the pain, but because they were going through withdrawal if they didn't have them. And that led into a vicious cycle. So if there's not, I was, you're not
0: giving me the answer I wanted, Alex. I was hoping there would be a separate, there'd be a separate, separate, there'd be a separate thread because I want to know how we can know we're not being fooled. You know, I like to believe that I'm not. I like to think I'm smart enough to not fall for this, but it sounds like everybody's susceptible to it.
1: So how do I know I'm not being fooled? Everyone's susceptible to it, but at the same time, everyone has the tools to be able to steer against it. You just need to arm yourself. It's like being, you know, it's like early in the days of the Internet. um, You know, if you got this strange email that said, click on this, and you would go, okay, let me click. Um, And it would be a phishing attack. And the next thing you know, all of your data would be uh, released to the world. Well, now we're a little bit more sophisticated about phishing attacks. And by the way, (laughs) I have to believe that's one of the reasons I do what I do. It's like a way of saying Watch out. You know, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. So it's a way of practicing over time so that you kick the tires. Uh, and I think that's incumbent on all of us. And I got fooled not too long ago. I was, uh, you know, my, my wife was really surprised. Was like, you, of all people. I got fooled <laughs> by, uh, um, you know, um, uh, luckily for me it wasn't a phishing attack, but it was something close to it because it, it came from somebody – who I believed might have really been in trouble.
0: I, I gotta- Well, because they're getting better at it, right? People yeah.
1: are getting better at fooling us. I mean, That's I used hard. to be able to tell my
0: mom, listen, if the grammar is wrong and they're misspelling basic english words it's probably not coming from inside you know the country it's probably but now they're spelling stuff right you know what i mean and so they're getting they get smarter too and so and i and i you know of course because because this is a politicon podcast we are you know we tie it into the world of politics and I, i mean i'm not ashamed to say we can see a lot of these same sort of gaslighting tactics Having happened, especially over the last four or five years, where there is a group of people who seem to be slightly more willing to believe whatever they're told on certain news channels, sure, um, because they want to believe it. Um, but there is a... There is an inability to convince people that it's not true. Like I can, if if I'm a Scientologist, if I were a Scientologist and I watched Going Clear, I would have convinced myself that you were biased and that you were full of shit. And I am sure that when Crime of the Century comes out um, in a week, there will be forces trying to say that Alex Gibney is... Biased and he's only showing one side of the story. That's right. um, people who've who've seen your work know, should know better But how do you combat that when you're fact-finding and you're trying to tell people the whole story and you know that? Undoubtedly, there will probably be a bunch of money thrown
1: <laughs> at, at discrediting you I mean at the end of the day you do the best you can and you present things to people. I do remember that when I did the Scientology film, one of the most gratifying things to me was that not only did their membership roles drop, but a number of people came to me who were ex-Scientologists that were too afraid to come forward to say that they had been ex-Scientologists until the film gave them permission to do so. So that's part of, uh, of why storytellers do what they do. You can talk about a story as something... Um, that everybody can share, and then you begin to dissect it and wonder if it's true, if it's not true. I agree with you that this idea of fake news and belief systems, this is a hard thing to tackle. I mean, the Scientology subtitle, the the subtitle of the film, it was called Going Clear, the subtitle was The Prison of Belief, right? Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, one of the reasons that I did the film the way I did was I walked – you through the process of people getting hooked into Scientology through a group of people who are tremendously likable and that were just like us, if we get to a point where it's not tribalism, I think that part of what the Trump administration did so effectively, and Trump in particular as an individual did effectively, was to engage that latent tribalism that all of us have. But once you accept this idea, and this is why I didn't want to go to the notion of two different kinds of people or three different kinds of people. If you think, look, we're all basically the same, right? So how do we respond under certain circumstances to different kinds of things? And that's why, you know, this is a podcast about politics. There's a bigger, broader message in a way um, in crime of the century, which is we've organized a healthcare system around a series of terrible incentives if the incentives are just to make money, then the patient doesn't come first. Right. The patient comes last. Because you don't want them to be healed. You don't want them to be well. At the end of it's the day. A, or, it's a sick
0: but, care system, but, not a health care system. That's correct. And,
1: and, and it, it's bifurcated. You know, there aren't groups of doctors working for the good of the patient. The billing system, you know, rewards, you know, repetitive procedures. I call it the MRI problem, you know, where if you're a doctor's group, And um, you buy six MRI machines, it won't be surprising that suddenly the rate of doing MRIs at your practice goes massively up, even though in many cases x-rays would do just fine. Right? But you got to pay for those MRI machines. So there's an incentive built into the system that rewards that kind of behavior, which is not necessarily so good for the patient. So, shouldn't the, I mean, so, but that incentivizes insurance
0: companies who who we demonize a lot, and they probably should be, um, but who we demonize probably more than we demonize the pharmaceutical industry. But the insurance industry is slightly more motivated to keep people from having to go to the hospital and to keep them well whereas the pharmaceutical industry is not necessarily motivated to cure anything when they can treat it instead right
1: that's true but you know again going back i'm to not my, i'm not praising the insurance company No, 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 no I, now, I, so. I, hear, I hear you and, and and sometimes we depend on insurance companies to to do the right thing and to challenge overcharging and so forth and so on. But what you discover, too, is that insurance companies have profit motives. And that means that they employ investigators. And we show a scene in this in the film, because one of the companies that we profiled, not Purdue, but a company called Insys, you know, that was promoting fentanyl, which is a an opioid, a synthetic opioid that's 50 times more powerful than um, heroin. So... Um, one of the things that they knew was that they knew that the insurance companies, in order to cut costs and thereby increase profits, had hired a group of people that were literally asking questions about drugs through a series of, you know, lists and algorithms, right? And so they were prone to be defrauded. And all the people that insisted was to break the code and to learn how to lie to them in really effective ways. Um, so in a way the whole thing gets cycled because of this, you know, you wouldn't want to nationalize Nike. The the market for sneakers is a good thing because it it increases innovation and and drives um, um, lots of companies to enter the market and you get better and better sneakers. But when it comes to healthcare, I'm not sure that the market as designed is really benefiting us. In fact, you know, we know in the United States the, the cost of health care is astronomical compared More to... More so
0: healthcare. than any other country, right? That's correct.
1: And our outcomes are not nearly as good. So, I mean,
0: I'd come out in support of anything you want to or don't, but um, if we had something like the UK does, if we had something like England does, National Health Service, um, which is... Loved over there, loathed by some people who sure. are over here. Do you think we'd have an opioid crisis in the same way that America does if we had a system like theirs where, you know, the, the government was more involved um, and controlling some of these um, medications?
1: No, I don't. I I, I think, you know, um, and, and there are a number of examples in the film, um, both... The the system of for profit medicine encourages abuses which lead to bad outcomes, and I think if um, if people get any message from Crime of the Century, it's that that the opioid crisis was driven by the profit motive more than anything else, uh, and and a system that is misaligned with the interests of patients. Why is why are
0: fire stations? um and police departments not privatized. You know, why don't we why don't we have to pay a company to come put out a fire at our house if our house catches on fire? That's this is a rhetorical question, obviously. Right. But because I think we recognize that, you know, if we did that, then there would be motivation for people to be setting fires so that they could make more money. If you if they got paid by the fire, right? Um, and and so this is essentially bad analogy, but it's it's essentially what what the healthcare industry, especially the pharmaceutical companies, um, are motivated to do. If if you're not sick, they don't make any money. That's right.
1: That's right. I want
0: to. And- I want to get to um, a few questions. We had some really good questions from listeners who knew you were coming in. Um, and I want to try to get to a few more of them than I uh, normally am able to. Um, Veronica from Richmond, Virginia asks, should all or most illicit drugs be offered safely, legally and without impurities after, con- after counseling based prescription? Let's cut that question down, Veronica. Should all or most illicit drugs be
1: offered safely and legally? Um, it's a good question. I'm not sure all illicit drugs, but I think that, um, you know, I I think we're getting to a point where, um, you know, let's take opioids, for example. There are very good uses for opioids. I mean, if you get morphine or oxycodone for three days after a knee operation, it's an extremely effective pain medication and you won't get addicted. Good use. If you're at the end of life and you have terminal cancer, and you have, um, and you're taking a, a, a long-lasting, um, you know, time-release opioid, it's a good medicine because it doesn't really matter whether you get addicted or not. You're you will soon die, right? Um, the and, and and it's easing your pain as you as you go into that next, you know, uh, 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 as you meet your maker. So I think that. Rules and regulations are important and the demonization of drugs need to be removed, even though there, I do believe there need to be rules and regulations over the usage of drugs because some are intensely dangerous, like fentanyl, for example, is so powerful. I mean, one of the things we got from um, uh, DEA officials was they would come upon corpses who had overdosed from fentanyl. And the fentanyl pipe would still be in their hand because they had overdosed so soon after ingesting the fentanyl that they didn't even have time to drop the pipe, huh. okay? Uh, that is a dangerous, dangerous drug. It's just the way, you know, we haven't made uh, tobacco illegal, but we've surrounded it with a tremendous... Well, we took
0: menthol out of it today. So. <laughs> Should we be treating um, addiction as a disease? Cindy from El Paso, Texas asks, should we be treating addiction as a disease? Yes. Look at that, Alex Gibney knows how to do a quick fire round, that's for sure. Um, Judy from Atlanta, Georgia asks, from finance to pharmaceuticals, how can we find players that we can trust? Is there
1: any such thing these days? I think the best thing to do is not to look for people to trust, But to design a system that encourages better outcomes that's a little bit of what i was talking about before if you have a system where the incentives are all wrong then bad things are going to happen so it's it's about putting putting the guardrails
0: up in a way to make sure that people aren't motivated to cheat
1: that's right and and you know even in the current system that we have, though I would argue that the current system is 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 always going. You know, it, it, I think that kind of it, um, um, you know winner take all capitalism and healthcare are not necessarily good uh, bedfellows. But let's even take the system that we've got. You know, one of the examples that we show in the film is that essentially uh, Oxycontin, which was produced drug. Um, was approved by somebody at the FDA. He actually worked with Purdue to write his own medical review of the application <laughs> that Purdue submitted. It's like the it's like the student getting to write his own test and to grade his own paper. Um, but then Purdue rewards that person by giving him a very high paying job. So where is the guardrail for us as the consumer? Because this drug now is released with a package insert that says it's safe, when in fact there was no evidence that there was that it was safe at all, because um, uh, somebody was bought off.
0: Uh, last listener question: Ellie from Saint Paul, Minnesota. Good question. How do you stay positive and energized when you're focusing
1: on such difficult topics? <laughs> that is a good question. I try to uh, um, I try to hit tennis balls and also. I focus on, you know, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about heroes now, you know, people, you know, even in this story, there are a lot of people, journalists, but also um, law enforcement officials and others, and, and citizens, a wonderful country doctor in, in, in the western part of Virginia, who rose up and, 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 and sort of organized the citizens crusade, ordinary people who do extraordinary things to try to make the world a better place. There are a lot of people like that out there, and they inspire me, and and that's one of the things that makes me feel better.
0: Maybe a future project on on heroes, on people who are a little bit less shitty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if if you're if you're, list, if, if you're listening now and you um, and you have ever watched TV or movies in your life, uh, and you're like me, there are always a few movies that I know I'm going to like because it's got Meryl Streep in it or something like that. I know if Meryl Streep or Glenn Close are in it. I'm absolutely going to love it. I know if Tom Hanks is in it, I'm almost certainly going to love it. I mean, we all have actors like that, and most of us have directors like that as well for scripted movies. Um, uh, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, who we know these things about. Um, If you've ever watched a documentary, um, chances are One of them that you've seen has been an Alex Gibney documentary, and it's just, I mean, it's been a true pleasure to be able to talk to you about this, not only because I think it's a fascinating topic, but because Alex Gibney is that name when you see it on the doc, you're like, oh shit, that's going to be good. That's going (laughs) to not only hold my attention, but it's going to teach me about something, you know, Every once in a while, you've got something like, a, you know, an Eliot Spitzer, which we all had heard, who we'd all heard of. But I did not know near as much about the Enron situation as I did after I watched uh, your doc on Enron. your documentary on Citizen K, Citizen K, the documentary yeah. um, on, on. now, of course, I can't remember his Alakoste. name. Yes, in Russia, um, uh, who's been persecuted by that uh, regime there. Just... Had me gripped, and much like Meryl Streep does it in scripted movies, and Spielberg does it for me in scripted movies. Alex Gibney is a name when you see that name attached to a documentary, w- run, don't walk, um, <laughs> to your streaming device and put it on your watch list and watch it. And you're lucky because uh, the crime of the century starts on uh, May 10th, so just just a week away, um, and it's a two-part doc, May 10th and May 11th. Um, Like I said, if it's got Alex Gibney's name on it, it's gonna be good. So if you haven't watched his other stuff, watch Crime of the Century on May 10th and May 11th, and then go watch all his other stuff because you'll be gripped by them as well. Um, Alex, I have to ask you the last thing before we go because we ask everybody this. You know more about human nature and some of this psychosis of bullshitting people and falling for bullshit, et cetera. How the heck
1: are we going to get along? We work at it. And, and I think there are a lot of examples of, of, of it working. Um, and we've made a lot of progress in ways that it, 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 it would have been hard to imagine, say, 100 years ago. Um, so uh, we just keep working at it. That's the best way forward.